We have an Old Testament reading, Psalm 39. Psalm 39, and then if you would go beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism in the back of the blue, page 8, the back of the hymnal. We'll read our scripture readings first. Psalm 39. It's a great psalm that has an eternal perspective and rests in God's sovereign power over all of life. So Psalm 39, hear now God's holy word. I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. But when I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me, and as I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping, for I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger, as all my fathers were. Look away from me, that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. Amen. And then John chapter 16. The end of John 16. Through verse 3 of chapter 17. John 16, verse 33. This is Jesus, the end of the Last Supper account, and John, just as he prays to the Father. We'll read just these few verses here. John 16, verse 33. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. First Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism, page 8. If you would go there, let us read the answers together with one voice of questions 1 and 2. Words 
with which we are, of course, very familiar. And let us say these words together. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. So we begin going through the catechism together. Thankful three years since we moved here and now second time through the catechism. have done some other things on the evening services as well. So we trust that the Lord uh, will bless our time together. Now before I begin the sermon tonight, I just want to mention uh, David and Rachel, Dick, a student at Mars Seminary. We've enjoyed having them. They're going to head off and do their summer internship here in the coming weeks. So uh, we've been joyful to have them with us this year. And of course, we'll be praying for a safe and healthy baby and delivery uh, throughout the summer. They're going to keep us informed of all of that. Uh, and we've enjoyed having them. So we pray that the Lord goes with you this summer, and we trust uh, that you will have a wonderful time there interning. I'm not sure where they are, if they're here or... There they are. Blessings to you guys as you guys head out. Sometime this week or next week, one of those. Okay, very good. All right, Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1. I read this week that a pastor... Of course, these are well loved words. Uh, perhaps, probably, the, the most famous catechism question and answer, certainly Reformed catechism question and answer, uh, that exists in the world today. And uh, having spent a lot of time in the Presbyterian tradition as well, before I came here, I can assure you that Presbyterians are very liberal in their usage of question and answer one as well. It's something that they use all of the time. It's beautiful. It is wonderful. I read this week that there was a pastor. Uh, the temptation, of course, can be to really camp out here and spend a lot of time unpacking all of the intricacies of this uh, catechism answer. And one pastor spent 40 weeks on question and answer one. So that's not my plan for us. I'm not going to spend 40 Sunday evenings on this because that's not the, the point of this. The, the point of Q&A 1 is to give you a sweeping overview of the, the viewpoint of what uh, Herman Hoeksema says is the Heidelberger, which I don't really like that term. It sounds like a pub grub you might order in suburban Germany, which sounds delicious, but I don't 
want that term for our beloved catechism, right? the viewpoint of the Heidelberger. It's essentially a worldview, a reformed way of seeing life and living according to it. And so it gives us all of these glorious truths in a, in a sweeping fashion in order to introduce us to the way that uh, we are to think as we work through this catechism. It's an introduction. I kind of was laboring, thinking about how do I do an introduction tonight, knowing that I've just done an introduction in the morning on Philippians, and basically it's the same kind of thing. Ursinus, one of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, is trying to introduce us to the kind of framework from which he's going to write this entire catechism. You can think sometimes of something like an action movie where it has a a fast-paced, action-packed scene in the first five minutes in order to introduce you to the kind of thing you're going to be taking in for the next 90 minutes. So this first question and answer very famously introduces us to that mindset, to that worldview, a system to view life, to view God's word, and to live according to it. What is that system? What is that worldview? Uh, Four things. It's rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in the gospel. The Reformed worldview is rooted in the story of sin and grace, redemption, and all that God is doing. Right? Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It's rooted in the gospel. Uh, resting in God's sovereignty. Resting in God's sovereignty. The Reformed worldview has a, has a big view of God. God-centered in all that it does. He is sovereign and He is powerful. Third, rejoicing in assurance. That God who is sovereign over all things, who is in control, He stands and He has declared that He will accomplish our salvation and we can be sure of it. So we rejoice. We rejoice in assurance. And then fourth, ready. Ready to live for the one who died for me. Ready to live for the one who died for me. Rooted, resting, rejoicing, and ready. Jesus says this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. That they know you, that they know Jesus Christ. Know God and knowledge of God and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that is eternal life. And with the catechism we have the, the, the kind of question before us as to how do we think about the knowledge that we attain as we learn the catechism. What is it that we are learning and and how do we think about the words, the information that we can retain? We should hopefully have much of that question and answer one memorized. We should go through our life with it. We should hang on to it and uh, never forget these words. But if we know them, what does it mean to know them? Do we know them truly? And what is it that knowledge does? Well, catechisms are, of course, a very important part of the Reformed Christian life. Many people take issue with that in our day. People have an anti-intellectual approach to spirituality. Um, It's not so much about knowing, it's more about feeling. Catechisms are said to be rationalistic, right? Centered upon uh, reason, making man's reason the measure of all things. Rationalism was saying that all the problems of this world can be solved through man's reason. But that is not what our catechism does. Our catechism is simply a way of synthesizing and naming things that have been revealed to us in God's 
holy word. It's a way of getting into our minds in as few words as possible, believe it or not, that which God has revealed so that we are equipped to know how we are to read scripture, how we are to understand scripture, how we are to walk around with these truths in our heads, how we are to contemplate these things throughout our days. It's about making God's truth our truth. It's about giving ourselves to the mind of God, not making the world subservient to our own minds. Something uh, that's unique about this catechism is how personal it is. And some people may say that uh, a criticism that could be levied against our catechism is that it's, it's too sentimental or mystic. It's addressed to us and it's answered in the first person. What is your only comfort? That I am not my own but belong, body and soul. Like my comfort, I belong. But as we see and as we know, this is not the comfort of sentimentality. It is uh, rooted in the gospel and God's grace. And it's all about uh, the, the picture of God's grace, the doctrines of God's grace as experienced and appropriated by the individual. So as we think about knowledge and the, the words of Jesus, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And we think about our catechism, learning about this truth and internalizing it. Yes, we are talking about knowledge. Jesus himself recognizes how important knowledge is. But it's spiritual knowledge. It's a faith-filled knowledge. It is uh, believing so that we can understand, not understanding in order to believe. But rather, I have faith, now help me understand. Jesus makes it very clear that knowledge is extremely important. He calls it eternal life. But the kind of knowledge that he's speaking of is not a mere science. We may go about learning the truths of God and going through his word and you can uh, interpret this passage with this passage and you can can compile all kinds of passages about our God and learn about him from his word. But ultimately, it's more than just a mere knowledge. It's a spiritual knowledge. It's a faith-filled knowledge. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But it's the kind of knowledge that turns your mind to ultimate truth and allows you to act in accordance with the truth of God. So Ursinus, the author of this catechism, when speaking about comfort, which that's the issue before us, what is this comfort that is given to us in Scripture, this all-encompassing, only comfort in life and in death. The author of our catechism says this, Comfort is a certain determination of the mind, whereby we posit some good over against a certain evil which we experience. We're experiencing evil, we posit a good over against it. By the contemplation of which, he says, we'll alleviate the grief and we patiently bear the suffering. So, in other words, when we contemplate a good over a certain evil, we alleviate the grief and we patiently bear the suffering. What is comfort? With all things considered, and the realities of this life considered at base, Christian comfort given to us 
in this introductory question and answer is laying in a hospital bed or it is weeping on the couch as you contemplate some great evil or some great sorrow and the truth of God floods your mind and your heart and it can alleviate the grief and you can bear the suffering. God's truth prevails over your heart. Just like in Psalm 39. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Jesus says in John 16, These things I have said to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will, not you might, not you probably will, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, do not lose faith, do not lose confidence, Remember who God is. Let his truth prevail over your hearts. Let it grip you. Let it shape the way that you bear the suffering patiently. Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful To you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Romans 8 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's a perfect example where the Apostle Paul shows us that some good can be posited over a certain evil which we experience by which our grief is alleviated and we can patiently bear with the suffering. So ultimately, we need to know these things. We need to know them. It needs to be in our heads. But that knowledge, when it's truly attended as a spiritual knowledge, as a faith-filled knowledge, it creates what? Confidence and trust and assurance in God. The gateway to the heart is through the head, the Puritans would always say. We get things into our heads because the gateway to our hearts is through our heads. So it enters our minds. We contemplate that truth. God working through the means of that truth and the minds that he has given to us, it goes into our hearts. It creates affections. It creates loves. And it orients our will to do that which God commands us to do. What do you know? What do you know determines what you love. What you love determines what you choose. That is why knowledge is so important. Because truth sinks from our heads into our souls and it transforms us to live according to these things which are given to us by God. One commentator on this catechism says this, Faith is more than knowledge. It is also confidence. Religion is more than doctrine. It is life and joy. And comfort is more than a mere decision of the mind. It is also a determination of the will, affecting all the desires and emotions. And Christian comfort is a matter of the heart. From from where are the issues of life? Christian comfort is a matter of the heart. So we see how God works, uses all of these things together. So much in today's world, we can posit the emotions against knowledge. God wants all of these things to work together. And it begins by being assured of his truth and learning and knowing his truth. What is the idea that the catechism gives to us with this only comfort? What, what kind of a comfort is it? 
Well, first it says that it's your only comfort, as, I, as I've mentioned. It's a personally constructed catechism. Asked in the second person, answered in the first person. What is your only comfort in life and in death? This is, of course, often compared to the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is stated in an objective sense. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's objective, and some people say, well, that's objective, and the Heidelberg Catechism is subjective. It's actually the same exact truth, but the Heidelberg Catechism shows that it is objective truth subjectively experienced, subjectively appropriated, personally appropriated and experienced. It is how the glory of God and the enjoyment of Him actually comes down to be experienced by people on the earth. It's how the glory of God comes to be lived out in the life of a Christian. Talking to my friend yesterday who's attending to his dad on his deathbed. And he he said, here we have the only comfort at work. A man who is suffering has found peace that Christ suffered for him. It's an objective truth. Personally experienced. Your comfort. It's your only comfort, your only comfort. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one has eternal life except through me. Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's an exclusive comfort. If you are terminally ill and a doctor says, I can cure you, I'm going to give you this one medicine. This one medicine will certainly cure you of your illness, but you need to do something else. You need to stop taking all the other medications you're taking. You not only need to take this medication, you need to stop taking everything else. And that is uh, what the issue is when we're talking about Jesus Christ being our only comfort. We were learning about contentment in Ruth Society this past month and wonderful illustration that was given to us You want to find contentment in Christ. You want to find comfort in Christ. Imagine somebody who's standing before an ocean and they're thirsty and they want to drink that water that's in front of them but you know that salt water does not cure your thirst and if you drink enough salt water, you actually will die. That's what happens when you go and try to find comfort in anything other than Jesus Christ. Are there many good things in this world and in this life? Of course. Can family give you comfort? Of course it can. Can the many blessings that God gives to us in in this world and in this life, can those work to comfort you? Yes. But you cannot put your trust in any of those things the way that you need to put your trust in Christ, the way that you look to Him as your only comfort in life and in death. Family, certainly I would say the greatest joy that God gives to us on this earth, but it is not our only comfort in life and in death. And if you look at it that way, it will let you down. The doctor can cure you. But you take that medicine, you have to stop taking all of the other ones as well. It's our only comfort in life and in death. In other words, it's all embracing. It's all embracing. One thing we need to be careful of is the modern idea of comfort. It has been said that uh, our age can be summed up with one word, therapeutic. 
People are not so much worried about ultimate comfort in life and in death as they are about being comfortable. But Christian comfort is not comfortable. Our ultimate comfort is one that transcends feeling. Death itself does not shake this comfort. Therapeutic comfortableness has no answer for death or suffering. Therapeutic comfort has no answer for death or suffering. Christian comfort is not shaken even by death itself. The commentator on this catechism goes on to say, It is the contemplation of a good so great and so precious that the evil we suffer cannot be compared with it, and unto the attainment of which the evil we bear for the time being is strictly subservient and necessary. It's one thing I mentioned this morning. It allows you to view the, the, the evil things in your life through which we go as subservient to your salvation and necessary for your salvation. That, it, that is what it means to be rooted in the gospel, resting in God's sovereignty, rejoicing in assurance, and ready to live for him. That's what it means to be equipped with this reformed Christian worldview, with a God-centered way of looking at the world and looking at your life taking all things from his hand. That's the idea of the only comfort. Lastly, then, the content of our only comfort. The content of our only comfort, the the awe that seeps through this entire answer, this catechism answer, is centered upon the glorious truth of a sovereign God who saved me. And who has accomplished my salvation. The creator of heaven and earth saved you and accomplished your salvation. What a glorious and marvelous truth. Colossians chapter 1 really works through this in in a beautiful way. It begins, the apostle Paul begins by saying, here is Christ. Here's who he is. And so he says this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell This is Christ. And Paul is saying, contemplate who he is in his nature. Very God of very God. Begotten, not made. But then he goes on. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This very one, this preeminent one, the firstborn of all creation, the one by whom and for whom all things were created, all of a sudden were smashed down into earth with the blood of his cross. He accomplished that salvation for us, the very one who created the world. So Paul wants to impress upon our minds there that vast chasm between who he is and what he has done. And be gripped by that. The content of our only comfort is found in this sovereign God who saved me and who accomplished all of these things for me. (coughs) 
He goes on to say, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And he goes on to say, It's not only what he has done for you, he has reconciled you by the blood of his cross, you who are hostile, but he's also made you to be something. In order to present you, he says, holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Be stable, be steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. In Romans chapter 6, Paul illumines this even more. He says, the death that Christ died, he died to sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." Live by being rooted in the gospel. Live resting in God's sovereignty. Live rejoicing in what he has done and the assurance that he gives and ready to live for the one who died for you. This viewpoint of the Heidelberger is summed up quite nicely in this this quote, this passage that I'm about to read. So I'll end by quoting it at length. Uh, just because I believe it's beautiful words that sum it up better than I could. And notice how he has all four of these ideas, rooted in the gospel, uh, resting in a sovereign God, rejoicing in assurance, ready to live for him. He, uh, this is another commentator on this catechism, he, Christ the Lord, is my faithful Savior, who with his precious blood is satisfied for all my sins, so that he is my only comfort over against the present evil of my guilt and damnable before God. I am justified. He delivered me from all the power of the devil so that he is no longer my Lord. I am no longer his slave and sin has no more dominion over me. He preserves me according to the will of my heavenly father, even so that no hair can fall from my head without his will. For he is my Lord and with body and soul, I belong to him. Even more, he so governs me in all things for for he is Lord of all that they must be subservient to my salvation. All things, life and death, sin and grace, heaven and earth, the world and the devil, suffering and sorrow, angels and principalities and powers, all things must work together for my good, because I belong to Christ, my Lord. And so this Lord of life and death, who is the firstborn of every creature and firstborn of the dead, assures me of eternal life. Even in this life, which is nothing but a continual death, He assures me of life eternal and everlasting glory and perfection through his Holy Spirit. What a comfort. In the midst of guilt and condemnation, I am justified and know that there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. In the midst of my present sin and corruption, I know that I am delivered from all the dominion of sin and all the power of the devil. And while I still lie in the midst of death, I am assured of eternal life. And gladly I acknowledge his lordship 
Indeed, not as a response on my part to what he did for me, but as the fruit of his own work for me and within me. For he it is too who, as my Lord, makes me his subject and constantly makes me sincerely willing to live unto him, rooted in the gospel, resting in a sovereign God, rejoicing in assurance, ready to live for the one who died for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, equipped with all of these things, we are ready to face this life that you call us to live. May we live according to your gospel grace, according to the hope that is within us. May we live in a manner worthy of your calling. Empower us to do that by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.